This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us is here. And now, here's your host. And we are back. This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Matt Caraccio. And unfortunately, uh, the summer seminar series will be kind of coming to an end, but it wouldn't be coming to an end if we didn't save maybe one of the biggest bangs for the last. And that is our panel discussion this evening. And I am so overjoyed and absolutely excited to welcome on the one and only Mr. Matt Waldman of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio. He is a senior writer at footballguys.com. He is arguably one of the greatest change agents in our field of evaluation from at least where we all must sit here and listen and stand. Matt, welcome to the Saturday Sunday Football Podcast. That's quite an introduction, and uh, thank you. <laughs> um, I, I love being able to talk with you guys about you know about the game and about evaluation, and you know this is such a great format to do. So I was so blown away with the series last year. I can't wait to really listen to this again and again this year. Well, and and to that point, not to be outdone in any way in his own right, but we have somebody who is honestly I've become a fan of. You know, over the last year, I've had many discussions with him offline. That's Mr. Jarrett Moyer. He's an NFL analyst. He works also at the RSP website. He is no no rookie when it comes to playing fantasy football, and he is certainly no rookie in terms of learning and really being a passion for the game of football. Jarrett, welcome to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I'm excited to be here. It's a great honor to be included in the panel. Um, You know, I respect your work a ton. You've done really great things over the past several years. And I mean, I'm really just overwhelmed to be here and participating. So I'm really excited to to chat with you guys today. Well, I mean, we are a panel of three. And uh, although not uh, incredibly chaotic and maybe 50 deep in nature. I think we're going to have extremely rich discussions today. And I, I really was hoping to kind of spend this opportunity and this time together with, I mean, two people who, in my opinion, I think each of you kind of pushes the boundary uh, in terms of understanding player performance, at least to the best of our own knowledge, where we all sit and stand. I mean, you know, we're not coaches we're not on the field we don't have regular access to you know the practice field with these gentlemen but you know we're tasked sometimes with a shaping uh, in some ways maybe of some public opinion in terms of what these players are and who these players are and while I know each of us takes a very humble approach to that um, we certainly do take pride in what we try to accomplish so I, I'm curious and I'm going to throw this as a as a kind of a, a kind of a, an initial fire question out there This entire seminar series was about the nature of the problems that players really have to solve and deal with on the field. And we're talking about in between the lines, and that's kind of where we'll restrict the discussion to the best of our ability to. My first question to each of you is, Matt, I'll I'll start with you and I'll, I'll give you the first opportunity to kind of go at this contextualizing the player's performance. We, we know that there's more than meets the eye to the way the player behaves. And we've kind of come to this idea that it's, it's not just necessarily a series of physical traits that dominate at each position. How has that, how has that reality begun to change or shape or evolve in your own process? How have you begun to 
again, I guess we all came from that point where we were saying there's a certain height, there's a certain weight, there's a certain this, there's a certain that, but we've all evolved to a different place now. And Matt, take me maybe a little bit through what that journey was like for you. And then Jared, I'm going to ask you to do the same in a moment. Yeah, it's been a long journey, really, when you look at it, because I think just like anybody who would be getting into this field, you're, you're thinking about, well, how does everybody else do it? You know, that's the first question is, how is it? What am I? What do I not want to miss doing? You know, because it, especially if you're new to it and you're learning as you're going, you're thinking, well, what does the establishment do? So it is height, weight, combine times, um, you know, the, the basics of, you know, I would if I were to begin today doing this without, you know, without the knowledge that I've gained, I would probably be listening to Daniel Jeremiah talk to, you know, Maurice Jones, Drew and Terrell Davis about how they view running backs and then whoever else they had, had on the show for all the other positions. And I would be trying to listen to as many of these people as possible and writing down what are things that I need to be looking for and, and how does this, how do the things they're talking about classify as, you know, together, you know, is it a, how are they talking about vision? Oh, they must be talking about power here. How are they talking about that? How do you define these things? And so I, I started in that kind of way, listening to people in that fashion and trying to just organize the information of the questions that I was going to be asking. But then as time has gone on, the more you start watching and studying the more you realize that the questions you're asking may not necessarily um, fit the answers that you're getting, you know, so or however, which way you look at it, chicken or egg, what's happening on the film wasn't really fitting what I was looking for. So I had to change what I was looking for, either splitting the questions into three different questions and really getting granular with the material. Then some of it was, shouldn't, should I maybe be tracking this stuff? In, in a numerical format as opposed to just looking at the answers, you know, looking for certain answers to, to questions. Should I actually be breaking it down in ways where, you know, like with wide receivers, like this year is a good example. Instead of, you know, or like I'll say, let me backtrack to say quarterbacks. I've always done some form of charting with quarterbacks is a good example of that. And, you, you know, you would track the normal stuff that you would see in a box score and then maybe a little extra like, you know, which passes were dropped, which passes were overthrown, you know, or misfired or, you know, not on target. And you're looking for those kind, kinds of things. And then, you know, last year I started instituting more for public consumption charting that really broke down the field into more, you know, into finer levels of like location, not only like from a, from a depth standpoint, but from a field width width standpoint in terms of zones across the field and then also whether or not the accuracy you know i define breaking down the accuracy at levels where i contextualize it more of where is that a, a pass is so good that the receiver by easily should have caught the ball and that it should be credited as as accurate on the level that bill walsh would have credited it to or crediting it to a level where you could say it was catchable and the receiver should have made the play but if he dropped it, you kind of understand that it wasn't a perfect pass to something that was, there's no way anyone should have caught this. Even if the receiver does catch it, you're like, well, Larry Fitzgerald could have caught that pass in his prime 
but does that necessarily mean that it should that the location was good? Um, and trying to figure out context for those types of things, and then applying that to wide receivers. You know, this year and looking at wide receivers and tight ends, and looking at things like and just tracking things like how many were in tight coverage, how many weren't in tight coverage, how many of these passes that are they catching were just generally accurate, as I described, or pinpoint accurate. How many of these did they? make of those types after and before and after contact. And so it seems like the more I do this, the more I'm starting to pinpoint areas where I want to see the numbers. I want to see the the percentages of, of, of times that they're doing this. And some of it's just to contextualize also how many, how many times, you know, out of a, if I'm watching 10 games, you know, and I watch 150 wide receivers or 70 wide receivers or whatever number it is. How often? What are the what's the baseline percentage looking at like over a three year period? So then I can see what's above average or below average um, from a broad standpoint, as well as that individual standpoint at each position in terms of you know how they catch the football, whether or not I may even breaking things down with route types might be something that I would start looking at. But it's like. I'm, I'm starting to get a better feel for how to contextualize things with data and how to contextualize things with film. And that I feel like is where my, my um, process is going is that it's breaking things down further and further into more granular levels, both with the types of questions I ask that I'm looking for and with the type of data that I'm collecting. No, and that's brilliant. And, and Jarrett, I mean, that's absolutely brilliant, Matt. And, and to Jarrett, I mean, it's very interesting reading a lot of your earlier work and work that you still subscribe to and you're building off of. And we had a lot of discussions about, um, you uh, are looking at things from, you, you have things like instincts and you talk about instincts and why receiver instincts and, and things to that effect. And so can you kind of unpack a little bit for us in relation to, contextualizing where are things like those instincts and, and elements that you're looking for um, when you're looking at uh, any position on the field, where that kind of fits into it. Are you getting granular? Are you thinking more holistic? What, or, or, or are they really not inseparable? They're just parts, same part of the same equation. Well, you know, just to get back to how my process was sort of established, I have experienced coaching, I coached seven years of high school football and, you know, I watched and participated in and really been passionate about football my entire life. But really when I began, you know, really actually getting down to the nitty gritty and evaluating players while I was coaching. And I feel like the, the typical, you know, consensus opinion is that the players who are really supreme athletes are the ones who have a higher, higher ceiling for development but I noticed throughout my coaching career, and these are high school kids, so not on the, quite on the same level of, of athleticism, but without fail, the kids I was coaching who continued to develop, you know, reached heights that you thought they wouldn't be able to reach otherwise, were not the kids who were the best athletes, but tended to be the kids who I felt were the best problem solvers. And what I describe as intuitive problem solvers, meaning the the kid who is playing quarterback and you don't have to tell him that, you know, oh, if the safety shades the receiver a couple steps this way, maybe you don't want to go with your primary read, but you can hit that third option even without going through your progression. 
And doing things like that are advanced skills that are very difficult to teach because there are innumerable potential scenarios that can arise on a given play. Um, and so to go through a, a laundry list of a thousand different scenarios and have the quarterback memorize, okay, during this circumstance, I can ignore my progression. During this circumstance, I better go through the progression because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, you know, it's, it's nearly impossible when you get down to really thinking about the time frame with which these decisions have to be made, uh, you know, during a three-step drop or a five-step drop uh, because, you know, the defensive end's flying at you. The whole play is happening in the matter of two seconds. You can't really think about that laundry list of possibilities. And so in thinking about this at the high school level and then really thinking about which NFL players are successful, because one thing that is really striking to me is I think when you look at the best NFL players, it's it's really easy to draw conclusions about what are unifying themes and it's really that there is no unifying theme in terms of the traditional things that are measured. So, you know, height, speed, weight, uh, production in college, you know, the offensive system they came from in college. There's no one thing that reliably predicts success. You have some things that do a little better than others, but, you know, using the traditional scouting metrics, it's, it's very difficult to reliably project players in the NFL and you see this with, you know, a high rate of busts that varies by position, obviously. Um, but I think for me, what I what I found really unified these players was the same thing that I, I thought unified the players that were developing and exceeding expectations that I coached in high school. And it's really those players that, you know, process things on the field very well, will make adjustments that you may not coach if you're going by the book. But in this particular scenario, it just made sense. Uh, you know, Mark Schofield wrote an article, I think that was published this morning on the RSP, talking about a chef versus a baker, a baker being someone that follows the recipe to a you know a very exact level, goes through the progression one, two, three, every single time, may hit the correct player every single time, but sometimes going to the correct player is not the best option. And I was watching Philip Rivers after I read that article this morning, and there's a play where he's going through his progressions against the cover three. And on the front side, he has this high-low concept that, uh, you know, is theoretically the better option against a cover three. But on the back side, he has Keenan Allen running a go route against Stephon Gilmore. This is in the, uh, in the playoffs against the Patriots. And, you know, some of you may or may not know, but against a cover three, the corner's job is to not get beat deep. And so a go route against a cover three corner, if you're going through your pre-snap read progression, you're going to say, okay, this is cover three. I'm not going to throw that go route to Keenan Allen against Stephon Gilmore. I'm going to go through my progression. You know, the check, the running back, Melvin Gordon, was wide open for a five-yard check down. But Phillip Rivers goes through his first two reads. As he's going to read Gordon, he takes a peek back over to Keenan Allen, who has beaten Stephon Gilmore. Gilmore, you know, bites on an inside move. And Keenan Allen's open by 15, 20 yards for a touchdown. You know, this is the, the, the touchdown they scored in that game. <laughs> uh, but you see this looking back at plays where there's a receiver running literally 15, 20 yards wide open, but he's not he's not where you should go based on the progression in the play. And so quarterbacks don't ever see him. And so those intuitive players, those problem solvers, the guys that I really, you know, on a more overall holistic process have – really focus my my study on identifying 
I think those are the players that tend to consistently do well in the NFL. And I understand why it's not classically described and why it's difficult to find because really you have to watch these plays on a play-by-play basis. You have to know the reads that they're supposed to go through. You have to understand, okay, in this case he did something different and it was successful. And then you have to figure out why he did something different, why it was successful and whether that's something that can translate. So it's very difficult, even if you're specifically looking for those things to find them on a consistent basis. Um, well, yeah, no, I, I think that's brilliant, Jared. And, and you have to forgive me. I mean, I, I only interrupted you just a little short at the end because I, I think you hit on a point that I wanted to kind of maybe turn on attention to. And Jared, I'm going to I'm going to take this right back at you because you're kind of doing something that I've been doing recently. And I know Matt has uh, unpacked for for several years. So I'm sure he's going to have quite the commentary on this. And it's something we talked briefly about last year. And that is the the advantages and disadvantages of the language that we use to communicate a lot of what we do both in the game of football and as evaluators and where those disconnects and those verbiages may present advantages and also disadvantages in terms of communication. So for example, I think one of the things that Jared, in my opinion, when you talked about intuition, um, it's something that people connect to. You don't really have to learn intuition. In other words, people understand that word. Um, but sometimes I feel like they also may take it out of context in terms of what you mean. And then you have to kind of double back and re-explain it. So I'm just curious where you gentlemen stand on language in terms of what we use in our discussion. So Jarrett, you had intuitive problem solver. You know I'm, I just believe let's just look at everything as problems and we'll go from there. Um, and we're all kind of rowing the same boat, so to speak. But where does language fit into this? And, and what have you seen in terms of the way your language has evolved, changed, or matured? And where, what, what can you tell me a little bit about that? That's a, I mean, it's a great question and also a difficult question to answer. Uh, obviously, you know, if you, no matter what great thought you may have in your mind, if you can't communicate it concisely and clearly to your audience, it has no value. And so, you know, there's there's often a trade-off between granularity of verbiage and, you know, understandability. So if you get too detailed in how you talk about things, you can get so detailed to the, to the point where what you're talking about holds no meaning to anyone other than you because there are just so many words involved. Um, but then if you are vague and you use words like intuition – uh, you know, that could potentially mean different things to different people. And then you get down the slippery slope of, well, you know, the the message I'm trying to communicate is being lost in the other way. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that I really have a great answer as to where that optimal balance lies. I think in general, the goal should be to effectively communicate your ideas using words that are uh, you know, relatable enough to enough people to where most people hearing it get the point, because I think no matter how you state things, there are always going to be, uh, you know, levels of miscommunication and misunderstanding. Um, but I'm a fan of trying to put things in simpler terms so they appeal to more audiences. And, you know, this is something that I've actually heard, uh, you know, and talked with uh, Matt about, Matt Waldman about a little bit, uh, is, you know, each scheme has a different name for different concepts. 
And even if you get very granular in your verbiage, it still can get overwhelming uh, in the sense that, you know, there are five different words that mean the exact same thing. And that it may not be necessary to ex understand exactly what all of those terms are. And more, more so is important to, you know, focus on the general concepts and how these players apply skills, even if you don't know what the skills are called, how they apply these things in the setting of evolving um, problems and challenges on the field. No, I'm, I'm, I'm silently clapping for you. I mean, I don't know if you heard that. I am clapping for you. I'm clapping for you, Matt. I'm going to pivot right over to you because I want you to take us maybe inside that discussion that you guys were having, maybe a little bit more in depth about the verbiage getting lost in the verbiage. What can what do you what do you think about the language that you're using? Maybe how it's changed, evolved, or what you hope for as you move forward. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great discussion point, and I want to backtrack just a little bit before we get there to some of the fine things that Jared said, that Jay said about, um, you know intuition because i think about you know as i talked earlier to opening it up talking about trying to really get things on a granular level of how i capture things more and more specific it's because i'm what what i real what i think a lot of people don't realize or maybe they do i mean like i've been doing this for 15 years and certainly i because i didn't start i wasn't a football general manager i wasn't a pro player wasn't even a high school player um, you know, I wasn't a scout, um, to be able to have a brand that I can do this full time means that I have an audience that trusts what I'm saying. And I'm very appreciative of that, but the work that's involved with that to get people to trust what you're saying, um, is that they trust not only just your process of what you do, but they trust the result. Well, the process is for me to show my work so that people could trust that I was doing the job. But I think everyone knows that even when it comes to scouting or even if you're doing projections, even if you're doing data projections, that there's a level of intuition that comes with all of this. Do you have the eye? And the eye is not so much some crystal ball psychic sort of thing. It's this idea of can you just like Philip Rivers looking at cover three and thinking maybe I should look to that backside go route to see if it's a going to break open because I know that Keenan Allen might be able to beat Stefan Gilmore because he's been setting up him up all game with this is it's the same thing that if you're studying all of these different elements and looking at everything for you to be able to t look at problems and piece them together and go the experiences that I can draw upon and my and that are flashes of all of these things that I've absorbed and processed over my years has allowed me to have these flashes of thought to go, maybe I should consider this, or maybe I can integrate these two things together that other people aren't integrating in a way where now, you know, because Philip Rivers is, he's integrating his understanding to cover three with his understanding of that Keenan Allen can whip Stefan Gilmore by setting him up with different types of things throughout the game to maybe that to break open. And those are disparate concepts because you're, one's the backyard game and you got to listen to, Keenan Allen, when he's on, if he's on the bench telling you, listen, if later in the game I'm going to get open on Stefan because he's he keeps biting on this and I'm going to go deep on him and he's going to bite on the first move, you know. And so he's got to remember that and integrate that into the game, even though maybe the, the cover concept would be, you know, otherwise someone like Alex Smith might go, well, that's fine, but I'm going to continue to look at the structure. I'm not incorporating that. It's kind of like, you know, Philip Rivers, we talk about the baker and chef thing. 
Philip Rivers is kind of like the the short order cook who the waitress comes in and says, it's that drunk guy again. And you know, he gets loud if he doesn't get his hash on time and we're going to have to call the cops. And, it, and we, and you know that you've got five tickets ahead of you that, that you need to serve, but you know that if you want those five people to stay in the restaurant and not have your restaurant shut down for an hour with the cops, that you might want to serve the drunk guy, the hash first. You know, and that's, all, you know, and I know, that you know, but it's like that's intuition and experience and wisdom all like put together. And that's Philip Rivers, the short order chef and, you know, as a quarterback in Los Angeles, you know, in that situation. And I think as evaluators, you have to have the same thing. You have to have some level of intuition to look at this and go, OK, I followed all the rules that I've spent 10 years putting together here. But it's still, but I'm still watching what I see on the field, and it doesn't click. So I could go by the rules of what I've instituted here, but there's a nagging issue here, and I need to figure out what that is. And maybe I can't fully classify that, or maybe I've got to try some different things here because I know what I'm seeing, and this guy is good, or I know what I'm seeing, and this guy something's missing with this guy that is I can't. I know that the grade says this, but I feel like down here with him, and I. And I've got to figure what that is. So it's about being open to trying different things and problem solving. And that problem solving does come with a level of intuition, wisdom, and taking these different things. So there's that component of it. And then when it comes to, I think, (coughs) you know, what was the original question with that? No, just in terms of now communicating. With communicating, now communicating yes. the language and where and we're facilitating the explanation for that overlap between these kind of seemingly you know desperate ideas comes into play yeah. where you're trying to build that bridge. I, I think it's kind of I think this is part of it too, is that you have to know the audience that you have. And Jay said that so well is that he's trying to really share and communicate to a larger audience. And when you do that, that larger audience isn't gonna know that there's five ways to exploit a concept. The, at best, sometimes at best, or the upper echelon of that audience in terms of their education might be limited to, I was a coach and I know this is the way that you say it, even though they're not aware that there were two or three other ways to actually say that. And they're like, well, most people would say it this way because that, that's just how, you know, where they're at. Maybe they're they're at that point of their education that they haven't broadened out yet. So, you know, it's kind of one of those deals. I mean, like, and we had this conversation because I was telling Jay, you know, I'm, you know, soon I'm painting this back wall within the next couple of weeks to so that I can do some more work at, you know, getting books like, you know, Fritz Shermer's Coaching Team Defense and, you know, Tom Olivadotti's book on pattern matching and, you know, all sorts of different publications where I'm just going to be sitting here diagramming all sorts of things to memory so that I can commit that to memory so that I know the rules, but I, but I can have a better understanding of how people break them because really the concepts in here of who's filling, who's supporting, who's, you know, who's spilling and who's squeezing and whatever they're doing. Those are all to me, those are like notes on a page or words on a page and and then you start looking at plays and plays are like sentences maybe. And then like game scripts are like paragraphs, you know, but when we're talking about what we're doing, 
these are stories, you know, they're, whether they're short stories or long stories or you're making stories out of certain snippets, you have to contextualize everything in a manner where, you know, I'm looking at all this stuff and I, and I said to Jay that I was doing this and, you know, but, it, and, and he made such a great point of talking about it. it really is about just having a basic enough understanding of what they're trying to do. You have to have enough con. I think it never hurts to have context, but there's a point where if you, if you don't have context, if you have all of this information without context and experience and wisdom and, and perspective, then you can get too caught up in like just the words, you know, and not really that there might be double meaning that, that there's not a larger, there's not an undercurrent of things going on. You know, it's just like someone who's learned how to read and you're asking them to read poetry. They're not going to understand poetry. They're not going to understand simile and metaphor. They're not going to understand themes. They're not going to be able to understand how you use an alliteration to, you know, to evoke some sort of um, physical sound as you're reading that actually fits also within some sort of emotional feeling that you want it to occur. Um, all these like subtle subtleties that go on with literature, with music, with art, and it goes on with football too. And, and I think, or with anything that we do. So, you know, for this, I mean, I, I was reading coach Fass's um, excellent story that Chris Brown and he credits Chris Brown and James light and a bunch of other people about, you know, his championship game against the six, eight wide receiver and how that he used a, a, a concept that Bill Belichick uses a lot to double cover one receiver on one side of the field and how he went through all of this. And to be honest with you, I mean, you know, as someone who's still a student of the game and learning coverages and learning different types of things, a lot of it kind of went over my head, you know, and from the granular standpoint of it. But, you know, and I'm not ashamed to say that because it's like, I've spent 15 years studying granularly level about certain things with movement and like technique individually that they haven't, but they've spent years studying things on a level that I haven't, I've only begun to touch. But when I'm reading that, I understood it enough to know this is a compelling story because basically he's going to have to go against that. Just like Philip rivers, he's have to go against every structure that he had to, that he's learned and figure out a way to solve a problem that was against what he had really learned and figure out how to do that. And he did. And that's the, that's the basic thing in the story. Maybe I didn't get the, maybe I didn't get some of how great or depth the humor might be about the fact that he didn't like tight as a defense. Um, and, you know, and he learned that he should never question a certain coach because that coach who teaches tight, you know, once he learned what that was all about, he was like, kind of being self-deprecating about it. Maybe I didn't get the, I didn't laugh out loud right away at the level that somebody would tell a joke to me about um, something that to me that I had depth of knowledge to, but I understood it enough. And I think the point being is that, you know, your audience, you know, where you maybe can be able to lead them. And sometimes you, in terms of communicating, you have to do what I just did, which is find ways to draw real life stories to get people to understand what the, the basis of the mean is talking about, whether it's talking about shorter chefs or poetry or music, something that has a parallel to it so that it engages people and they realize, Oh, that's what that's about. And then they, and they get that visceral human reaction to it. No. And I, and I think that this is all fantastic discussion because 
you know, if I can interject, you know, a little bit of, of where my process, just where it is right now, I mean, I've even tried to take exactly what you guys are, are talking about and even explode it to even a higher level, meaning a more of a, a 35,000 foot view. I'm saying to us, like, you know, the, the granularity of all the language and the nuance that is our game, it, it made me start asking questions about what type of game do we play? You know, when you look at, you know, when you look at sports and you look at the sports science, you know, they have all these different classifications for games and what types of games they're dealing with. And, you know, I've pretty much gotten to the point where I think American football is an invasion game and it's an invasion game, one in which the principal task is to gain territory. That's it. You know, the defense has to prevent territory from being gained and the offense wants it. And that's the that's the duel we see. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is two teams basically attempting to gain territory or prevent the other from gaining territory, which started to make me ask questions about, you know, all the nuances that go with the different techniques at every position. What is the principal task and what is it that's that's structuring the behavior of those players within those tasks at any given moment. So in other words, I, I think I was, I was talking um, previously on uh, social media about the idea of, you know, how does the, how do the major marks on the field, like where it be like the hash marks, the sideline, the first down marker, the end zone, um, how do those shape the behavior of the offensive player and the defensive player in terms of their principal nature task at their position? So if I'm a wide receiver, I want to create space in order to create a throwing lane for my for my quarterback. That's that's what I want to try to be able to do. And how am I going to do that? And the defender is trying to prevent that wide receiver from gaining a first down, gaining yardage, trying to gain territory while also trying to prevent that passing lane from being um, complete, you know, so from obstructing that passing lane to any degree that they can. And it just made me start trying to wonder you know, what are the principal tasks at all these positions? And that's kind of where why my journey over the last two years has been outside of football into the world of kind of movement science, where they're talking more about movement from a games perspective and not necessarily football. And I'm trying to trying to integrate that more and more. And I find that it's equally complex, just as you gentlemen have already articulated, it's equally complex, but it also is beginning to say to ourselves, if we can keep kind of zooming out even further and further and ask ourselves, you know, what are the great players doing? It, I keep stumbling on this idea of, you know, they're, they're solving these problems or they're, they're functional in what they do. And what, what, that, what does that actually mean? What does it look like for a player to be functional? What does that mean to be a functional running back at the NFL level? So I'm going to, I'm going to task you guys with this next question. I, you know, you guys have known you guys know a lot of the background of what we're what we're I'm talking about right here but just in case some of the listeners are new to it we talk about this word functionality and i think functionality is a bit of a misnomer sometimes i think there's a, a camp of people that talk about functionality as being average and then there's an entirely different camp of people that talk about functionality as being um very very much uh, a definition of how players are solving problems they're solving it functionally meaning that they're solving it they're getting the task done um they're solving it at a level that is commiserate with ever whatever level of mastery they're competing in nfl um you know high school college and as an evaluator the difficulty is for me to figure out will that 
high school level functionality actually play at the college level? Will that college level functionality play at the NFL level? So it really puts, again, a big premium for me as an evaluator on trying to really find those exposures that are as close as I can get to the next level I'm projecting them to when I'm trying to examine them on the field of play. But I wanted to take you guys into this position of what does functionality really mean to you at, at, a, at a position? Let's start maybe with wide receiver. You know, just to unpack, what, are, what, is functional, what does a functional wide receiver look like for you, Matt, at the NFL level? What does a functional wide receiver do at the NFL level? What do you think makes a guy who could potentially be on the roster comes opening day? And I mean, I mean that because we're, we're not going to say starting level, all-star. We're talking about a guy who's going to play football at the NFL level at wide receiver. What is a, a functional wide receiver? What are some of those hallmarks that you have come to glean as being important in your journey? And to me, I think that it's, a, it's not just one set of things. It's like a combination of uh, – Let's say that's perfect. By the way, I'm trying to lean you down a hole. I was going to drop you in a hole, but you got it. Let's just just say it's like it's say. Let's just say for just for the sake of saying that it's ten things, even though it may be twelve, it may be four. I don't know. We're just going to say ten things. It's a combination of ten things, and there are several combinations that will work. It's kind of like it's kind of like playing blackjack, and that there are several There are certain number of combinations that will get you to twenty one. Um, and it's, and it's that same kind of thing with wide receiver, some, you know, depending on whether they're playing an X, whether they're playing a Y, whether they're playing a Z, the flanker, the slot or the split end, there's combinations for what works there. There's combinations for, well, I have a guy who can do two of those three positions, but he might not be like, if, if the combinations might not hit 21 for him, if he was just doing one of them, but because he can do both. He's likely going to get on the roster because he can do both just well enough. And we need someone who can do both or, you know, so, or instead of a slot player, we need a big tall slot player who can occasionally block just enough on the edge that it's believable and, and it's respectable just enough that we can call him an H back, you know, even though he's actually more of a Marcus Colston, big slot receiver. So there's these types of combinations that come into play. So some of the things that I look for with a wide receiver, um, I think are things like comfort with physical play, both being the aggressor and or, and a lot of times I think I'll say and or with this when I just prep with what I just prefaced, either being aggressive and or comfortable with people being aggressive and physical with them. Because it's easy that players, you know, players in college football, it's like, it's, you know, again, going with another analogy, it's like fighting. You know, if you're in high school, the biggest, most athletic guy is usually a bully. If he's going to bully you, he just can impose his size and he might hit someone once. And that, and that kid who's being bullied is basically going to shirk away and be bullied, you know, in a, in a way, if in a college situation, you're actually going to meet more and more people who actually work out and take care of themselves. And if they have a fight, neither of them may know how to fight, but they'll push each other around. And the one who actually has one good skill might actually win. Now, if some if you're out in the real world and you and you're a big strong bully who meets someone who might be you know half your size but has trained 18 years in martial arts and knows Brazilian jiu-jitsu and has actually fought at a level where they've understood some things, or maybe they were a combat veteran who's actually done 
studied hand-to-hand combat at a high level, um, you know, now you're talking about two completely different planes. So I think that when you talk about, you know, the, the physicality and comfort with physicality at the NFL versus the college level, you're also dealing with, um, you know, level of training and understanding that are you just the big bully who wins because Nick Saban puts you in an offense and says, here, run, run fast, jump high, here's your spot? Or is it because Nick Saban's wide receiver coach who's now at Michigan is, you know, has trained the heck out of you and you have a great number of releases and you actually, you know, have a, have certain levels of pro skills. So comfort with physicality, comfort with having people being physical with them. I think a understanding of at least on some level, whether it's routes, separation, catching the ball, um, on, on these combinations, you have to have enough combinations that will work at at least one of those wide receiver positions on some level that's repetitive. It doesn't have to be like you know the entire route tree. It doesn't have to be that you know all the different separation moves and can apply them all in, in, in with great skill. It doesn't, you know, but what it does mean is that you have to have some sort of combinations that work well enough and um, for you to be able to repeat them and they can put you, they can use you on the field in these situations. It's like someone who tells an absolutely great joke and does great physical humor as a comedian, they, but they can't do any serious like monologue. And if you close, do a close up on them on a screen and ask them to depict them slowly going insane and doing something that's going to like, make you believe that they're literally having that transformation in a tight shot on the field that you wouldn't believe it. But if you put them into a, into a skit where they like did physical comedy, you'd be okay with that. Well, for a wide receiver, maybe it's, we know that they can run short routes and, and once they get the ball after the catch, they can, they can do damage. But if we ask them to face someone one-on-one and press coverage and go deep and win on the outside, it's not going to happen. But knowing what you're casting for, is part of that. So to me, it's about finding what you're casting for and what the possibilities of how they can be cast. We're more scouts are more like casting managers. You know, it's kind of like here are the different roles that they can have uh, in the film or in the, uh, in a play or in some sort of performance. And then it's up to the director to figure out whether or not they could use them. I'm going to give you those options and I have to know what these combinations are. And so that's how I look at for a wide receiver for that, even though I'm not giving you specifics in terms of specifics. No, that that was, that was fantastic. And as I move over to Jay, I think that's fantastic just because I see that I see it very similarly. I've been saying I need to look at the position as a landscape of problems. What are the problems that that position is tasked with? And then we can go about assessing what types of problems the player is best served at, or functional at in terms of solving. And then we can find places for them very much to your analogy of, you know, a movie and a casting director. What is the landscape of problems that that position has? And to what degree do you solve those problems in different ways? And, and we'll find a spot for you. And Jay, if you have some things to add to wide receiver, fantastic, please do so. And then I'd like you to maybe if you could impact a little bit of functionality in terms of maybe the landscape of problems that exist when you're looking at a running back. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. So just, uh, you know, getting to the question on functionality and what comprises functionality. 
uh, for a receiver, I think a receiver is a great position to analyze because, uh, you know, it is a position that entails so much problem solving, both cognitively, physically. Um, you know, there's so many combinations that can arise on a given play from a receiver's perspective. And I think that while people often think of that for a quarterback, that very often people don't appreciate the, the level of functionality a receiver has to have to overcome those problems and solve those problems. And for me, it's defining functionality, it's hard for me to answer that question because the, the way I view it is really functionality is the essence of what I'm looking for. And then I'm not trying to figure out, okay, what is X, Y, and Z that makes someone functional? And this is very much in line with what Matt just described. It's more of how is this specific player functional and is that uh, uh, is that functionality something that's going to translate? And you guys both touched on that exact point uh, when you were discussing this. And so when you think about it from a receiver's perspective, you know, knowing the context of, of the offensive scheme, knowing the context of the defensive scheme allows you to understand the problem that receiver's facing. And what I look for is, okay, given these parameters for this problem, how does the receiver go about solving those problems? And it could be, well, you know, he runs a 4-3-40. No matter what the coverage is, he's sprinting past a defensive back who's not, you know, physically comparable to him. And then that makes you say, okay, in the NFL, typically players who just rely on physical traits don't have as much success as they do at the college level. Whereas, you know, a guy like Marquise Brown may have that speed, but you watch him play against cover one and he's running a deep post against cover one and cover one, meaning a single high sort of free safety in the middle of the field. And then a corner who's guarding him essentially man to man. And so typically that's a coverage that's very good against a deep post route, because you can imagine you have one guy guarding him man to man. And then there's a safety waiting in the middle of the field, which is exactly where he's going. And, you know, I posted an example of this where Oklahoma's playing Texas and Marquise Brown's playing cover, facing cover one, and he's running a deep post. And understanding that he's faced with this dilemma of a very difficult situation, what he does is he uses his release, he uses his route stem to manipulate the corner to play him very hard towards the sideline. So hard that he's able to then break underneath the corner with the corner running essentially right up the sideline and he's created this space between himself and the safety to where he's now breaking his route off from essentially the sideline towards the middle of the field. So instead of catching the ball, you know, in the middle between the two hashes, he's getting the target even before he gets to the hash mark. And, you know, Kyler Murray is enough of a creative playmaker at quarterback that he also recognizes this problem. And he hits him a step earlier. He releases the ball a step earlier than you normally would to take advantage of the fact that Marquise Brown has created this space between the corner and the safety that wouldn't ordinarily be there if you just ran the route how it's drawn up in the sand or on a piece of paper or on a whiteboard. And so those are the things that really get me excited for whether I think a player will become a functional player in the NFL. It's when you're faced with a very difficult problem at the collegiate level do you have creative ways to overcome it other than just using your physical talent? And yeah, Marquise Brown may have just been able to run over the top of the safety because he's so fast, but that's not going to translate when you're facing the increased speed of the NFL. 
Whereas, you know, you look at guys like Antonio Brown, Keenan Allen, uh, you know, Keenan Allen on that play I mentioned earlier is running a go route, but, you know, 20 yards downfield, he takes two inside steps to, to make Stephon Gilmore think he's running a post. And Phillip Rivers is reading the left side of the field and, you know, Allen's on the right. And so Gilmore reads those two steps. He thinks, okay, he's running a backside post to, you know, hold the free safety. I'm going to jump that route in case Rivers tries to throw it. But Keenan Allen has decided I'm faced with this problem of of this cover three corner who's guarding me to take away the deep route that I'm running. How can I create space between myself and the DB? And he's like, well, I'm going to sell the post, even though that's not written up in the play. And like, you know, like Marquise Brown at Kyler Murray, Keenan Allen has Phillip Rivers, who is in what I would describe as an intuitive problem solver. And he also understands that and he finds him for the touchdown. And so for me, you know, I love the idea of functionality and I love the idea that Matt touched on that, you know, both of you, Matt's have touched on (laughs) (laughs) the Matt's, (laughs) you know, and that's, that's really that there are, are many different, uh, you know, physical archetypes, many different performance archetypes that can be functional players in the NFL. And really the, the essence for me is trying to figure out how a player is functional at the collegiate or high school or whatever level and whether that's going to translate to the specific scheme and against, you know, more physically superior competition that they'll face in the NFL. And when we get to running backs, I think running back is another position that entails a lot more, you know, cognitive, visual processing Uh, and reaction than people give it credit for. I think that even more so than receiver, running backs are are a position that's commonly thought of as, you know, a size speed position. So if you're bigger, you're faster, you're going to be better. Um, And and it's funny to me because I'm always sort of puzzled because when you look back at history, you can see players that were good and it's very easy to conclude that, okay, the biggest, fastest players are not always the best. And whether you do it on an anecdotal level of, uh, you know, looking at a guy who's diminutive in terms of size and height, like Barry Sanders, or a guy who's not that fast, like Emmett Smith, you know, you can see all these examples. And then even if you study it on, you know, a sophisticated statistical level and you're looking for correlation coefficients, you know, you're looking at regression curves to predict performance, there's really no correlation between any specific measurable and performance. And I touched on this in a piece that I wrote for the RSP, where, you know, looking at late round late round running backs and undrafted running backs who go on to produce more highly than you would think, uh, you know, running backs who are less physically gifted are actually more likely to, uh, you know, produce beyond the expectation of their draft capital than those running backs who are very physically gifted, but fell in the draft for other reasons. Um, And I think that often the difference for those players is the functionality and the problem solving and the cognitive issues that are often underappreciated for running backs, you know, when you think of guys like Priest Holmes, who's not necessarily big or fast, but had a lot of success, uh, you know, Philip Lindsay this past year as a rookie, who was an undrafted free agent, weighed 180 something pounds, you know, came in and took the league by storm as a rookie, despite having a guy in front of him who was drafted early in the, or, you know, relatively early in the draft in Royce Freeman, who also happens to be a really good player himself. And so, that level of functionality, that level of problem solving applies to every situation. And I think for me, I sort of had this aha moment where, you know, I'd always thought of players with physical attributes as having high ceilings. 
when I really made the conclusion that the players who process well, the players that solve problems well, are actually the ones with the higher ceilings, even though Larry Fitzgerald or, you know, an Emmett Smith may not have those same physical capabilities. And really the idea is that intuition allows you to learn and allows you to improve at an accelerated pace. It's not that you're reaching a, a, a ceiling of cognitive or functional development, but those players who are really, really good at it, like Antonio Brown, another example of someone who's, you know, small and not super fast, they continue to develop their skills to the point where they reach heights that no one thought they could on a more consistent basis. And so I've really, re, you know, reversed the idea of the, the, the specimen athlete has a really high ceiling to now I think of the player with elite uh, processing and problem solving as having the highest ceiling. Um, and I think that's counterintuitive to what most, you know, what is most commonly practiced in evaluation and coaching and just performance science in general. No, I, I would I would agree with you greatly. And I would actually argue that when I was listening to each of you speak, you know, it, it brought me back to something that many, many years ago, this is probably before we've uh, either one of us had even met each other. Um, Matt, I remember you speaking, I think it was on a podcast at some point, and you would always talk about the it factor, the integrative technique. And I think what we're talking here about is giving that language now. Now we're beginning to give that discussion, the it factor, a language and a way for us to begin to talk about it. And that's kind of where, you know, for me, it's all about dexterity. And dexterity kind of is that word that, yes, it sounds like it comes from Dungeons and Dragons, and it does. Um, it is part of your charisma rating, and you can up it a power level or two if you get the secret sword. Um, but yes, <laughs> I mean, people listen to the word dexterity, and it's so not part of the the common lexicon that is evaluation, but yet it does encapsulate so many of these ideas because we're talking about dexterity, about things like wit, motor wit, and the idea of wit being the, the, the basically how quick you can find a solution to a certain problem. How witty are you? If you send somebody has incredible, incredible comical wit, it's because they have amazing timing and amazing dexterity within the conversation to say something that gets you to laugh. And it's just their ability to sense the room and say the right thing at the right time that incurs that kind of laughter. And they have comical wit. And yet that same type of wit exists within the motor systems as well. You know, when they're moving on the field, there is that wit of solving the problem quickly that is being presented to them. And you talk about, you know, Jared, how you were talking about that, that wonderful, um, you know, Marquise Brown kind of discussion about, you know, attacking the, the hip of the defender longer than, quote unquote, what's technically necessary, but yet inducing the response necessary to create separation. That's not something that was pre that was pre thought out. It wasn't necessarily something that he understood intuitively. He had to do at that you know, moment before the ball was snapped. It was something that happened in that moment as it emerged, as the problem kind of presented itself in its entirety. Yes, there was a, a repository of experience, as Matt had talked about, wisdom and ideas that maybe he had to lean on, but there's also that self-awareness of his own physical capabilities and how to leverage those capabilities to create that solution in that moment. And I think that's where we're talking, like creative ways to like we said, if we classify football as an invasion game, then we're talking about it being about space and time and movement as a means of manipulation to create more space 
and even more time. And dexterity is all about a player's ability to kind of do that. Another word for instinct or intuition or integrative technique. This idea that these players are sensitive to each of those uh, those particular moments that are unique for them because only them can attack the situation in that particular way. That they're aware of where their own authenticity as an athlete fits in that moment to create that unique opportunity for them to exploit it and make a positive play, whether it be a quarterback, a wide receiver, a running back. You know, no two players, as Matt was saying, it's, it's a combination of many different things. And it may be one player has a certain combination that's different than another. And that's okay because they're solving the problem in their own way. I mean, Matt, in your years of evaluation, have you seen – because um, I know archetypes is something that you've begun to adapt probably in the last few years, more more religiously, if that's fair. Is that something maybe you've always been kind of pointing to as you've been going along? Or is it something that you are more recently kind of embodying as a framework as you move forward? Something that I've more pointed to as I've gone along, but maybe it's only because, but not consciously. It's kind of arrived as now more of a conscious effort probably in the past three to four years. And then it was something that was pointed out to me that I was going in that direction anyway by someone within the league back in 2011. Um, And that they appreciated that because they were already doing some of the same things um, on a certain level. So, you know, part of it is like Jared said, you know, when he's talking about, you know, that great article that he wrote in the RSP about in the RSP site about, you know, that that it's about guys who process well and it's not so much about how great athletes are, because I think what and it is counterintuitive because our general public now they'll fight you to the bitter death that speed matters. The reason that but look at it this way, Philip Lindsay and Peyton Barber, you know, are two good examples of players, both undrafted, I believe. OK, both ended up starters for their team. One actually had a good offensive line. One has never had a good offensive line. One, the one who didn't have a good offensive line, has beaten out Doug Martin, has beaten out Chris um, Sim, Was I don't remember his his last name. I think it was Sims, Charles Sims. The other, and he's also beaten out a couple other players who are, you know, he held off Ronald Jones, who was supposed to, you know, and Ronald Jones may grow and develop into being a good player. We'll see. But the point of the matter well, is he's one of those he's one of those guys that I like to say their their teams are always trying to replace them. You know, yes. CJ Anderson being another good example. <laughs> yeah. And the point being is that what's funny is that we have a bias because we don't look at the reason Philip Lindsay everyone loves is because he's fast, because he has speed. He's he's a you know, you see him breaking long plays. You, and you know, and there are certain and you can compare Philip Lindsay with Peyton Barber, and you might come and say Philip Lindsay is a better running back than Peyton Barber. That may be, that may or may not be the case. But the and but if you make that case, it still doesn't take away from the point that people are more willing to adapt when the player shows some physical ability, who's a late round guy that matches their idea of what a top round player is physically, as opposed to a player because it's easier to see the speed than it is to see that the offensive line didn't block this play right and Peyton Barber turned lemonades, you know, turned lemons into lemonade, and that that four-yard run you saw was way more impressive 
than the toss play where Philip Lindsay outran the safety. You know, now you'd still say, wow, that I can, but I can viscerally appreciate him basically leaving the safety in his wake and blowing him over with the speed that he just basically ran by. That's more fun and it is more fun. But if you're analyzing it, you know, you may, you may analyze it a little bit differently. There may be some nuance to that where you can see value in both, not just one or the other. And I think that the, you know, so when you look at these particular situations, you, you know, when it comes to archetypes and with different players, what it's kind of led me down is to realize that, that these physical skills are just, are just basically tools, but you still have to know how to use the tools. I'd rather have a master craftsman with a bad hammer than me with a hammer. You know, I mean, you know, I could have the best hammer at the hardware store, but if you've got, you know, if you've got Chip Gaines or whoever it is on TV that does these types of things on HGTV, you know, HGTV doing, you know, I'd rather have someone who knows how to use a bad hammer and make it look like that it's that and make it actually functional. He's going to get, he's still going to get the job done faster than me with a perfectly good one. He might even get the job done if I had a if I had a power hammer that you plug in that shoots the shoots the nails and he just has basically a handheld hammer. He's still probably going to get the job done faster than I am. Um even though I might make prettier holes into the, you know, into the wood, you know, in terms of what's going on. I also might shoot shoot my toe off, you know. So at the same time, it's one of those deals where you have to look at this and understand that too much of our evaluation and analysis community is speaking in words. And occasionally when they put together a sentence, people are really like impressed when they can put together a sentence when it comes to the idea of analysis, you know, like, um, and I don't mean literally a sentence, but like the, they value speed. They value some aspect of vision. They value strength. They value, um, you know, change of direction ability. And to them, they're using it. They, they say these things and they value these things, but those things that they're valuing are literally just words in a sentence. They're not telling a story. They're not crafting poetry. They're not doing anything that really evokes that total product, but they're, but we're celebrating that thing for the fact that our analyst community is saying word. And people are like, word you know like we're a bunch of (laughs) you know and then like somebody comes out like coach bass and he's like paragraph and people are like this is great but three quarters of them are like i don't understand really what he was saying you know but i know it's impressive but i know i'm never gonna get there you know and then this and but then at the same time there are people who are gonna say here's poetry right here and they're going to go, I don't like poetry. I've never read it, but I don't like it because I know that it comes to that there's some level of bias that's ingrained to what that is. Peyton Barber can be doing masterful poetry in two-yard gains, and people will go, word, because they see Philip Lindsay run you know, a toss play for 50 yards. You know, and so that's kind of when we talk about where we're going with language and where we're going with um, archetypes. That's the problem that's also faced with doing the work and presenting that and your audience still being in the word phase of everything, you know, kind of like fire, wheel, 
yeah. ever, you know. <laughs> no, you're no, to, you're right. Got to go printing press, you know. <laughs> <laughs> power. It's just power. Well, why do you do it? He's hey, powerful. Can I, yeah, go can please. I Absolutely. In? It's funny. It's funny that uh, the two examples that Matt used between Philip Lindsay and Peyton Barber, uh, because they ha- they share that link as undrafted guys. And I, well, I agree that that Lindsay has that flash trait that le- has led fans to adopt him, uh, you know, more warmly than they have Peyton Barber. There's still a significant portion of people out there who are already trying to get rid of Philip Lindsay for mm-hmm. Royce Freeman, and. The funny thing is I was actually studying studying Peyton Barber this morning. I was watching his film. And ironically, the, the player that he reminds me of is Philip Lindsay. And I don't think that anyone else I don't think anyone else would say that. I, like honestly, because in in no you know common form do these players evoke images of the other. But the thing that really for me stood out about both of their game is and I've talked to, to Matt Waldman about this uh, on one of his pods is the, the levels of vision and the thing that stood out to me as the biggest strength about both of these players games is that, and it's again, it's what I think of as an intuitive problem solving trait. It's they will consistently on a play by play basis, they will manipulate linebackers by the change of direction of their hips the change of their footwork. So you see Peyton Barber over and over and over again run an inside zone play uh, where he's reading linebackers. And he, you know he sees the hole. He knows where he's going to go. But he doesn't go there first. You know, he'll take steps a couple yards outside of that hole or a yard or two inside of that hole. And what this does is the linebacker who he's reading but is also reading him now runs himself into a blocker. And then Barber efficiently cuts to the hole that he knew was going to be there all along. And he'll get, you know, a five-yard gain, whereas most running backs would run to that hole, get a two- or three-yard gain. And it's not like he, you know, happens upon this once in a while. He does this on a very, very, very consistent basis. And, you know, Lindsey's speed jumps out at you when you watch him on film. But he's another guy that I noticed on a routine basis using his hips and using his feet and using his timing through the line of scrimmage to, to get the linebacker to do what he wants him to do. And it's funny because when you watch these guys and really the hallmark of, of the running backs that do this best is it makes what they're doing look so easy because it looks like they're running through these giant holes. And only when you really slow it down and watch it over and over again, can you see that it's not just, Oh, the offensive line was much better. You know, Philip Lindsay led the NFL in yards before contact last year. This is often cited as, as a statistic that implies that his off- offensive line was dominant and really he's just fast and they had a good old line and so he got all these yards. But then when you watch it, you see that, well, he's getting these yards before contact because he moved the linebacker over a yard and he cut back and he does it so efficiently that the backside pursuit linebacker can't get to him and now he's in the secondary, whereas most running backs would have you know, gone to that cutback hole right away. They would have gotten tackled for a four-yard gain. They get their four yards before contact. You know, there you have it. Um, and so for me, it's, you know, it's really exciting to see those guys because, one, I think it presents a, a, uh, an opportunity for tremendous value for teams because these guys are the guys who go undrafted. They make it look so easy that they hurt themselves. 
their talent belies their opportunity because it looks so easy and everybody's trying to replace them. CJ Anderson, uh, another undrafted guy, Peyton Barber, Philip Lindsay, every, everywhere you look, they're bringing in guys to try to get rid of them. And it's really, (laughs) for me, it's really fun to watch these guys because I sort of feel bad for them, but I really think that they're like the upper tier of performance at the position. Well, no, I, I mean, I, everything that you got, gentlemen just said, I mean, I feel like we've been, I feel like we've been copying each other's work for a little while. I feel like we're all sitting next to each other in the same row of the classroom and we're all just looking at each other's notebooks here and there, because I think it's exactly what, you know, from my opinion, I, I think we're talking about skillful fo- solutions versus those solutions that are not skillful. And when we talk about skillful solutions and we're talking about functional solutions, we're talking about those little nuances about what they're sensitive to in terms of manipulating the space and time that's available to them by how they move and what they do to create opportunities for themselves. And I think what you're talking about is when you talk about the Philip Lindsay's and the Peyton Barber's, and I I mean, I'll even talk about players like Doug Baldwin, who recently retired. When you're talking about players across positions, we, we can even talk about players like Tom Brady, just his footwork in the pocket. We can talk about players at the tight end position. We can talk about Tony Gonzalez when he was playing. I mean, we can talk about players in all facets of the game, offense and defense. And you're talking about their sensitivity to different layers of information that allow them to play at a different speed than the players around them. And that's not, like you said, that's not that, you know, that physical speed. It's that ability to perceive, understand, and act, that ability to actually move in space. It's what they're sensitive to on the field. They're seeing things in a very, very different way than the players and personnel around them. They understand how to manipulate and how to change time scales for different players to invoke their own kind of dominance over a particular situation. Like you said, if you're running an outside zone play, maybe your particular zone is, you know, that it's outside the hip of the tight end. And that's your, you know, that's your spot on outside zone that you're going to be on your track as a running back. But you realize that there's a defender out there already overhanging that's cheating there. So you adjust on the fly to going a little bit tighter, maybe to the inside thigh of the actual tight end, knowing that that may throw off your lineman a little bit, but then you're going to make a break at a particular point that you deem appropriate and you're going to make that play work. It's, it's not just all preconceived. It's as you're going and as the play is unfolding. And I think there's, I think what you're, I think when we're talking like this, I think that's the next wave of evaluation is we're talking about looking at these players a little bit more holistically in terms of the problems they're presenting and then the solutions they're being able to come up with and the players that are more adaptable, I think have that opportunity. Yeah. I hate to jump in with this, but that's something that I think would be helpful to this conversation because we're, we're enjoying the fact that we're talking about what the future could be. Yes. Right. I think it would, we'd be remiss not to have kind of point out what the obstacles are for, Mm -hmm to to deal with this particular type of future because we're all talking about guys like yeah Lindsay and barber and you know and players who can make these types of solutions and everything you're talking about but we have to remember too that there's an environment and i'm sure jay understands this as a coach that there's a there's an environment out there of coaches yep. who are learning certain positions or certain roles or got a new position and they have a certain role 
and they're no, they they only know so much. So when they see a player do something like that, they may not have Jay's perspective, and they may be looking at it by the book. They themselves may be bakers as opposed to chefs, as with that Mark Schofield article in terms of how they coach. And so as a result of that, and a good example of that is we all know Ryan Riddle, probably Ryan Riddle, who wrote for Bleacher Report. Um, he's certainly, uh, you know, he's a friend of mine. And Ryan was a former defensive end at Cal who was still their all-time single season sack leader during the time that Aaron Rodgers and Marshawn Lynch were there and a variety of other players. And that he had a cup of coffee in the NFL with several different teams as a defensive end and outside linebacker. Um, and he talked about while he was at Cal that his defensive line coach would say to him, I need you to do things this way. You're doing things too far out of the box. And Ryan would go, Am I, is it getting in the way with my assignments? Am I playing assignment savvy? Am I doing the things I'm supposed to do? And the coach is, yeah, but I want you to do it this way because if you get, if you have trouble, it's going to be on me. And I don't, I need you to do it this way. And Ryan is like, yeah, but if I do it this way, I'm not playing my game. And if I'm not playing my game, I'm not playing my best. And after like a back and forth of this over time, the coach finally relented and said, okay, fine, do it your way until you mess up. And then if you mess up, then you're doing it my way. And of course, Ryan never messed up enough for them to ever have to do it the coach's way. But Ryan is the type of person that is willing to engage people like that and also do it with a level of maturity that it's not going to become a, a thing that a, maybe a less mature young man and the coach would have a conflict and then the coach squashes everything and either the kid's benched and not, not playing at all or he has to conform to what the coach says. And what the coach is saying is basically, yes, I did some skillful things to get myself to Cal but I actually was a wide receiver guy, and this is my first year coaching defensive line. And so he doesn't have all of the Philip Rivers-like short order cook type of tools to integrate all of this stuff together. And he's, it's his first time doing this. And Ryan Riddle's the drunk who wants his hash in the, you know, you know, right away. And you don't understand that if you have that, you're going to make a lot more money if you feed that hash to that guy right now as opposed to waiting five tickets down the line. And Ryan was that guy, you know. So the thing I'm saying is that part of hopefully, the hopefully Ryan's not uh, hopefully Ryan's not listening to this. Uh, oh, Ryan would be laughing at me right now. So, the you know, the no, he's not a drunk, but no, yeah, that's true. That's true. Ryan will probably be laughing at me right now, but um, but Ryan, you know, Ryan's that was that kind of creative player, and I think that a lot of creative players, just like anybody in corporate America, who may need a little bit more. Um, autonomy to do really well, but the manager, either they got there by the Peter principle or they're good, but they're good because they do it a certain way. Can't rec- They're not good enough leaders yet to recognize the spectrum of ability to do the type of work they need to do. You've had principles, I'm sure, and you won't talk about who they are, but I'm sure you've had principles, Matt, who like there are things that other teachers could do that are tremendously creative, won't hurt the students, won't be an issue with the school, but because it doesn't fit the structure of what the state government says word for word of what you need to do, they're not going to allow that to happen. 
you know, and they're going to be resistant to that. Whereas others will go, sure. And now that teacher shines, the students shine, students who otherwise probably wouldn't have been good suddenly have a passion for something and it just opens up everything. You know, and I think that right now the problem we have, in addition to just what the general public thinks, is that that future also depends on coaches who are willing to go, you know what, there are different ways to do this. Let's be open to that. Let's be open to not just saying this is the way and we're going to play football, as Fergus Connolly says, like a video game. And these are video game controlled players. And let's. Have some, let's breathe some air into this and let some be some more improvisation and different ways about going about things. Well, and I'm going to pass this on to Jared to comment on it, but I, I want to say is one really salient point that I heard over the, the course of this series, which, which I hope everybody um, has, has heard and, and will listen to several times, um, was you know this idea of starting to understand that we should be thinking a lot more about football and technique and coaching in terms of guardrails setting up a sequence of guardrails. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that, you know, this is the exact prescriptive way to do something. But once you begin to get outside of these guardrails, we stop playing the game of football. And that was something that, you know, Dub Maddox had said in this series. And it just stuck with me and it has stuck with me because those are really where I think as a coaching staff, as a coach myself, I needed to start adopting that more in my own craft as presenting situations and guardrails for my players and allowing them space and creativity within that. So Jared, as a coach yourself, does that resonate with you? Some of these obstacles that Matt was discussing and maybe this idea of guardrails, does any of that resonate with you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I completely agree with every, everything you guys are saying and really what stands out to me and what has stood out to me is that the, the, the people who are great at anything really know when to ignore what their boss is telling them to do. Um, you know, Matt already made various analogies when he was talking uh, of extending this into the business world. Um, you know, you, you talk about guys like Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown doesn't do anything by the book, and that's why he's great. Um, and it extends to coaching. There, are, I was having a conversation about, uh, you know, Mike McCoy and Sean Payton, Bill Belichick, and what really sets great coaches apart from coaches who, you know, have a great scheme is there, there are a lot of people at all walks of life that can learn something that's very complex and then apply that complex tool over and over again to the situation where there may be some subtlety where you say, well, you know, that tool may not be the best tool for this precise scenario. But then the coach is like, well, this is the only tool I know. So, you know, you see David Johnson last year running repeatedly up the middle of the defense when you have very recent examples of ways that you can deploy him much more effectively in terms of lining him up out wide at wide receiver, you know, running him on outside zone plays, uh, getting him out on the perimeter of the defense. And it's really those those special thinkers, those special uh, characters that go beyond what they've learned and take what they've learned to build something new that they can then adapt to whatever situation you have. And, you know, you have Bill Belichick, really a concrete example of this is his work with Nick Saban, where they sort of invented pattern matching zone defenses as a way to solve the problems that they were approached with. Neither one of them had been taught this is a form of defense. And if they had just been going by their checklist, they would have kept doing either man to man 
or you know general area zone coverage techniques where they keep getting they keep getting beat by the same things and there are a lot of coaches that would stick with with what they've learned that wouldn't be able to adapt and wouldn't win you know six super bowls like bill belichick has done and really when you talk about elite performance in anything it's that ability to think outside of what has already been described, what has already, what you've already learned, and really go beyond that. And you know, you look back at human history, and every example of great achievement involves some step along the way, where they started doing things differently than what everybody else had been doing before. Um, and so, really, if the people in charge and the and the bosses, you know, and the talent evaluators and coaches come to appreciate that this is a talent that really sets those apart and encourage it, I do think that you could potentially reach new heights in that probably people who never thought, you know, oh, maybe I shouldn't do it exactly this way this time. You know, maybe they're not stubborn enough to disregard what their coach says. Those people in that gray zone can then develop those intuitive problem-solving traits and really shine in areas where they may have been, you know, confined before, uh, so if, 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 like you're saying, adopting a coaching structure of sort of guardrails rather than uh, a laundry list, a recipe type of, uh, you know, coaching direction, you may actually be able to influence the development of these traits in kids and in college athletes uh, and, you know, lead to a place where performance as a whole is then elevated even higher than what we've seen thus far. I, I couldn't pick a better spot to wrap it up together because I think that we've gone through a litany of discussion points in this discussion that I think were fantastic from talking about each of your individual processes to looking at the players at their positions on the field and some of the natures of the problems. As we contextualize it, we begin to develop, develop our understandings now to the, to the realm of coaching and the obstacles as Matt so eloquently put it, that are being presented to us in our own sport that are really not hindering us, but but really, really asking us to prove ourselves in terms of what we're doing. I, I couldn't ask for a better place to stop for our audience. And I, I really would be remiss if I didn't immediately thank each of you for the amount of time that you put into this pot, this panel and to this particular podcast. I couldn't think of a better way for this summer seminar series to kind of culminate and end with each of you gentlemen. So on behalf of myself and everybody at the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. Matt, where can we find your work? Well, you can find my work at mattwaldmanrsp.com. You can find Jarrett there as well. Some of his work is there, which is just fantastic. Highly recommend checking out what he does as you've you've listened to him this past hour or so. Um, And you can find my YouTube channel, Matt Waldman's RSP Film Room. That's a channel as well as my um, podcast, Matt Waldman's RSP Cast. And Jay, just as just as uh, Matt had already iterated, um, you're doing a lot on your timeline. How can how can somebody come out and follow your work, interact, and get to know some of your insights better? Uh, I mean, Matt already mentioned that I contribute over at his web- website, mattwaldmanrsp.com, um, with more sort of long form articles and video breakdowns. Uh, do some quick hitting video breakdowns that I think are fun to watch over on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is at jmoyerfb, just the letter J, M-O-Y-E-R-F-B, as in football. Um, those are probably the two easiest places to, to find my work. 
Well, on behalf of myself and the rest of the Saturday Sunday Football Podcast, to each of you, I want to extend my most humblest thanks for spending this time. It really was a delight to be able to unpack some of these ideas and to know that even though we're we're only at the beginning, the, the quality of the questions I think we're asking and the way in which we're beginning to ask ourselves and understand what's happening on the field, I'm really excited for the analysis that's going to be now and into the future. And for everybody else out there that's been listening, I want to thank you guys for your time and for your dedication. I really hope this summer seminar series uh, really helped you get a little closer to the game and to the nature of the problems the players are facing on the field. Uh, quick note, there will be a bonus episode with a very uh, with a person coming up at the end of August um, that I'm excited about. It'll be talking more about movement and uh, the nature of that idea. So stay tuned. It'll be a bonus summer seminar series coming up late August. And thank you so much. And please, 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 as we get into the hot bedded debates of the top running backs and wide receivers into the country, please. Please be sure to stay in contact with us and please join us next time as we take you from Saturday to Sunday.